Welcome to The Future Built Smarter, a podcast in which iMeg engineers discuss innovative and trend-setting building and infrastructure design with architects, owners, and others in the AEC industry. I'm your host, Joe Payne, and with me again today is Mike Lawless, uh, iMeg's Director of Innovation. Mike, I I hope you're feeling innovative today as we uh, embark upon our fifth podcast episode. Yeah, no, excited about the fifth fifth episode. Excited to talk to Ryan. Uh, a little disappointed we don't have a, a cigar and, and beers and talking around a, a bar table right now. <laughs> we will work on that. <laughs> More to come. Uh, FYI, Mike Mike works out of our St. Louis office, and uh, I am about 250 miles farther north on the Mississippi River here at IMEG headquarters just by way of geographical pinpointing here today. And our guest is Ryan Searles. And Ryan comes to us from one of our Texas offices. Uh, Ryan, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yes, you bet. We're very excited about talking about uh, things today with you. And I I need to give readers, or I'm sorry, readers, (laughs) listeners, you can tell I'm a writer, um, give listeners a little background on you. I think that you're one of the most unique, if not the most unique, roles here at IMEG. Uh, you are a security consultant who specializes in security assessments with a, a focus on threat assessments and emergency preparedness. And let me just kind of, you've got an incredible background. You really make me feel like a slacker. <laughs> but I'm going to go ahead and point out, you have, you've, you, you were in the military and and you earned two Purple Hearts while working in special operations. You've chased pirates in the Indian Ocean. You've taught foreign governments counterinsurgency and counterterrorism measures. You've taught FBI officers in active shooter response training. And of course, the last thing on your bucket list was to come work for an for an engineering firm, right? So yeah. Yeah, okay. It fits right in with everything else. Exactly. Exactly. That's what I figured. Uh, did I get all that right? You've done all those things? Yes. Yeah. I, um, you know, I had some spare time and wanted some adventures. So I, I decided to go that career path. Um, and, you know, it, it was good. And I had a blast doing it. Love serving the country. Um, you know, the Purple Hearts weren't so much fun. Um, I always I always bobbed when I should have weaved. So, you know, and I ended up getting those, but yeah, you know, it was fun traveling the world for a while doing that stuff and then coming back stateside and helping more get into the corporate consulting side and the teaching and the training and Uh that uh, it helped kind of round things out. Yes. Okay. Well, and it's really worked out well for us because you've brought a really unique service that we can bring to our clients. And in fact, you know, we're hearing a lot of questions uh, from clients as people return to the office as COVID-19 uh, abates a bit and and uh, more things open up. And we have a lot of questions from our security clients about how they how they prepare for people to come back. And uh, uh, you're a big part of, of that messaging. And uh, uh, this, this podcast episode today is actually part two of, of a two-parter that addresses uh, how to make employees feel safe and comfortable when they do come back to the office. And, and so today, we really want to talk about uh, how to make people feel safe and comfortable uh, through crisis management, not only for what we're facing today, but also for the future. To start with, uh, Ryan, if, can you 
can you kind of give us a nutshell uh, in a nutshell what what you bring to the table in that respect? I think you call it is organizational resilience. Is that part of it? Sure. Yeah. A lot of it is, you know, goes right in line with organizational resiliency, uh, crisis management. And really what that means is just how how much your company can deal with before it falls into crisis. Right. And that's how does it respond to weather? How does it respond to an active shooter event? Kind of I like to play the what if game. What if this happens? How do we respond? And really, are they prepared for it? So, yeah, it all kind of falls in the bucket of organizational resiliency and what an organization is prepared to deal with and at what level. And I think, you know, the great thing about having Ryan on board and that that great experience that he brings to the table, one is I think being part of IMEG gives Ryan an opportunity to really have an impact across the country with all of our different clients. You know, we're getting calls asking, hey, we're going back to the office, you know, what's, what are we, what should we do? What should we, we be thinking about? And this whole thought process around resilience and crisis management is just a, a important part of getting back to the office. And really, you know, for us at IMEG, how we got even this far, you know, we've been pretty, pretty resilient internally as far as continuing our operations, you know, and Ryan's been a part of that. And now we continue to answer those questions for our clients. And Ryan, what kind of questions are you, are you getting? How are you helping people right now? And what kind of suggestions do you have? You know, a lot of it has been on this end, uh, policy and procedure. How do we how do we get down into writing what we all just went through? And a lot of people, a lot of different organizations went through COVID kind of, you know, as we found out information, because it was something kind of new to everybody and we were learning something new every day. And as kind of industry standards were set, people responded to those. So now a lot of people are working through their processes of, you know, how do we get our response more formal, more documented? So if this happens again, we're prepared for it. And we, we have kind of those policies and procedures in place to follow steps of how to get through a, a crisis again. And so I've been doing a lot of that. Um, definitely a lot of uh, mitigation. How do we prevent it from spreading in the office? What do we need to do? Um, so really working on all sorts of different angles as far as COVID, getting back to normal. Everybody's saying that. How do we get back to normal? And, that, and that's what everybody wants. And I guess, Ryan, the other thing that I start to think about is we're going to we're coming up on another transition, too. And that's, you know, we've transitioned into social distancing and masks and all those sorts of things. And hopefully at some point in the not too distant future, you know, those same industry standards are going to come out and they're going to tell us to do something that's different. And so, we, you know, whatever is put in place has to be able to I think just we're going to have to keep reacting and adapting, I think, in this phase. Yeah. So, you know, back in my my days of military and, you know, working for the government and contract for the government, we all always called those TTPs, tactical and technical procedures. And, you know, as we set forth guidelines, the enemy is always adapting and changing theirs to what we're doing. So then we have to change ours again. And it's, you know, it's the exact same with organizational resiliency as a new threat emerges or something like COVID how do we now adapt and change? And with organizational resiliency, you really have to live in the gray area, in that middle space. It's not just black and white. And uh, Brian, you generally have three key steps, right, that that go along with uh, emergency preparedness. Uh, what are those? 
Yeah, I always like to approach really all this as prevention. What are we doing to prevent an emergency from happening and, and mitigate that? And then if one does happen, because we all know nothing's 100%, right? So if something does happen, how do we respond to it? What do we have in place to help our organization, but also help our employees and, and respond to it? And then once the response phase is over, we have to be able to switch at some point to post-event, which is how do we get back up operational and profitable again as soon as possible? And you can look at that really at all different sectors, whether that's healthcare, how do we get back to treating people as fast as possible? How do we get back to normal operations? I mean, it, it can go against all, all different business sectors as far as looking at that approach to it. I think going back to, you know, interesting, thinking about COVID as the enemy, I think a lot of us had that thought before. And also the gray, the gray area, which as engineers, we like, you know, we like black and white. So, you know, that gray area is going to be important. I, I guess what I'm thinking about is, you know, COVID is just one example. There's sure. many different things that, that are going to have to be dealt with as time moves on, you know, natural disasters, those sorts of things. What about, you know, how does it fit, you know, you think about rising temperatures and climate change and some of the what the different weather patterns we're seeing, you know, how does, how does this fit with, with those sorts of things as well? You know, when you look at that, you're really not sure what the future is going to look like as far as what the weather is going to do or anything like that, but we got to consider it, right? I mentioned earlier on that whole what if game, what if this happens? What if that happens? Definitely, I think people need to consider climate change, especially if you are an organization that is around a coast, because how's how's that going to affect hurricane season? Are we going to have prolonged weather issues now if we're, if we're somewhere on the coast? You look at places with drought or high fire like California or anything else. Okay, are we going to have extended drought times now? Is fire season going to be longer? So definitely with climate change and weather patterns, you're going to have to consider different things and, and be prepared for those. And some of the, some of this goes to, you know, the, what's the process with which you go through on this? I know we talk about tabletop exercises and other things, but no matter what, what we're looking at for a business, this resiliency is really important. And you know, what's that process look like that you take people through? So I like to do when organizations bring me in, I like to do what's called either a needs assessment or do gap analysis of what they have in place. And really, I'm trying to find their gaps of, look, maybe you have policy and procedure in and that's really done well. However, when's the last time you guys rehearsed this or do you have a crisis management team set up? Do you have this in place? How often do you do drills and rehearsals and all sorts of different things we're looking at to analyze really how resilient is that organization going to be if something's to happen? So we're going to start looking at things on different levels. And a lot of times it just involves sitting down with the organization, meeting with key stakeholders and individuals, and just kind of chatting with them and seeing where they're at on certain things. Hey, Ryan, you mentioned uh, rehearsals and drills, and uh, that's a huge part of, of this whole process. And, you know, I think back to when I was in grade school and all the fire alarm drills and you know it was it was drilled into our heads on what do you do when when that happens but um what about today and why why is why are drills so important because is it a is it a a response uh situation where you're trying to really drive home to people what to do in such a such a crisis moment 
It is. And, you know, you bring up the fire drills we did as children. And it's funny, if you look back and you think when you were in school doing fire drills, you always went out the same door, down the same hallway, and rallied at the same point. There's been case studies done now with how people respond under stress, where even if the fire was in that hallway, teachers have led children out of their classroom into that hallway with the fire because that's their normal hallway they'd go down to. So one thing I've done for organizations in the past is just tell schools, make sure you hold a sign up and rotate them in different hallways that say fire. So if a teacher comes out of that classroom and sees that sign, now they have to find their secondary exit and another way out. And that's really helping train um, what we call your lizard brain, your fight, flight, or freeze response and help condition that uh, to a response. And, and I know you shared some really good uh, stories. I mean, not good stories, but they're really horrendous stories about what happens when 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 people aren't prepared for knowing their exits and so forth. Yeah. Um, you know, I brought up that lizard brain. We like to refer a lot of times to the human human brain versus lizard brain. And when you look at that, it sounds kind of funky for people who haven't heard it before, but really, if you think of the human brain, it's very reflective. It likes to reflect back on why things are happening, why things are going on. It's very emotional, some much more than others. And then, you know, it's very rational. So that makes our brain, our human brain, very, very slow when it comes to decision making, especially under stress. Um, our lizard brain is the one that's just going to react. Instead of being reflective, it's reflexive. It just goes. So like someone throws a ball at you, you put your hands up, you know, to protect yourselves. It's like I said, it's that fight, flight or freeze. Now we can condition our lizard brain to respond a certain way under stress by using our human brain to train it. And that's why we go through like awareness training for active shooter, for fire, for all sorts of different emergencies. And then drills and rehearsals are really what builds in that stress response into your body. So you know what to do and you have different options uh, during that deliberation phase of response. And and the story you've told before that I've heard, you talk about uh, 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 Rick Rescorla. Would you would you share that today? Because I just find it in a, a fascinating example of how effective repetitive drills can save lives. Sure. Yeah. Rick, um, Rick was a great guy. You know, he, he fought in the battle of the Idrang Valley in Vietnam, which was our first major battle in Vietnam, uh, won two silver stars in Vietnam, got out as a colonel. Um, and, you know, after that, he actually, once he retired from the military, he actually became a college professor and started teaching college and then decided, you know, he didn't like how we we're shaping young minds at the time. So Rick decided to take on a new career path and he got into corporate security. And Rick actually became the uh, corporate security director for Morgan Stanley, who had more floors than anybody else occupied in the World Trade Center. And um, Rick, you know, got hired and the, the CEO asked him, hey, Rick, what do you want to do? He said, I want to do a vulnerability gap analysis. I said, all right. So Rick brought in his buddy from overseas and they did one of these. And Rick and his buddy actually ended up predicting the first attack on the World Trade Center. Um, and they had did that years prior and wrote it out and how it would happen. And, you know, this was a vulnerability. And that and, was when that was when the uh, the bombs were planted. Is that right? Yeah, that's when the, the van full of explosives yeah. was in the parking garage. And, um, you know, after that event happened, 
what's even more impressive with Rick is in his part time outside of work and outside of other things, Rick took it upon himself to do a private investigation. And it was actually Rick and his friend that caught the mastermind behind the first attack. And there they caught him and then dropped him off to the police and FBI. And, you know, Rick Bick went back into work at that time and was looked at by the CEO like, wow, you predicted this and you even caught the guy that did it. What do you want to do now? He's like, I want to do another vulnerability. And he said, all right, do one. And Rick rode up, you know, they're going to fly planes into these buildings. These buildings are very vulnerable to planes and this is how it's going to get attacked. And uh, he almost became obsessed with it. And he went to the CEO and he said, I, you know, here's my report. And the CEO said, what do you want me to do? I can't, can't stop planes, Rick. I said, I want you to move to Jersey. I'm moving to Jersey. I said, well, it's cheaper labor, better traffic. We can spread out in a bunch of smaller buildings so we're not a big target in the sky. So Rick, we're not moving to Jersey, but you can do anything else you want. Rick said, all right. And he went and bought a bullhorn and a whistle. And Rick would hold drills all the time. And the executives hated Rick because he would bust into the boardroom and start yelling on that bullhorn and they had to stop what they were doing and respond. Um, employees, the way he would hold drills, they weren't too happy about it. He wouldn't let them use the elevators. So they had to walk down all 22 flights of stairs in groups of two while holding hands. And he sang them old Cornish war songs, the same ones he sang his troops in Vietnam to keep them calm under fire. And uh, Rick would hold these drills nonstop and he would really build it into him. You know, he was always famous also for the tours at the World Trade Center. If you went on a tour and you came into Morgan Stanley, you were getting a safety briefing by Rick, even guests. And, and he was famous for drills and rehearsals. And, you know, 9-11 happened. And they told everybody to barricade in place. And Rick said, forget that. And he grabbed his bullhorn and a whistle and started a drill. And Rick saved about 3,000 people that day. And, uh, wow. you know, more impressively, the second plane actually went through Morgan Stanley. And they only lost six people because he got everybody else out alive before the second plane. Um, so, you know, we're taught our whole life practice makes perfect. And we have to practice at something to be good at it. And that's what that showed. I mean, I think Ryan, I mean, that's, that's a super impressive example, obviously, but that's the whole point of what, what you do, right? I mean, your, your goal is to come into organizations and analyze what they do and help them to be more prepared for what might come to their ability, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Number one thing with us is always life safety. You know, it, it, your employees are super important. How do we preserve that life? How do we protect life safety in your organization? And then after that, we start looking at, you know, how do we get you back up and running? How do we get you operational and really analyze how they respond to things? And so I think that's the, you know, in my mind, that's the great thing that, that Ryan brings that we can bring to our clients is that that outlook on life safety. As engineers, that training, that part of it, we just, you know, we don't have when we design buildings, we design the systems. But the training and all those things that go along with keeping people safe, you know, that's the whole next step that is, is really, really important. And I think that's, you know, that's that, that perspective that, that Ryan can bring. And I guess thinking about COVID, we've all been at home. We've clearly not, you know, even if Rick was there doing drills, there's, there would have been nobody at Morgan Stanley during the last year to probably do drills with. Sure. So what does that look like? Now we're back in the office or starting to come back to the office. How does that preparedness start again? crawl, walk, run, 
we we have to start at an approach, right? Because most people, if you just spring a bunch of stuff on them, their immediate mindset is, why are we doing this? Did something happen? You know? So it's really, it's easing them back into safety. It's easing them back into security and, and just get them back to normal where they're ready to respond to different things. I mean, our employees are smart. They see on the news all the time. We've all seen it. There's been a ton of mass shootings lately. And you've seen a lot of focus in security and safety um, start shifting, not away from COVID because we're still dealing with that. But I would say back to and sharing with mass shootings and active shooters again. And so they know and they our employees know why we're doing these things. So we just have to educate them and kind of get them back into the groove of things. And I guess on the, you know, the convincing of an organization to be prepared, I think everybody would say, hey, yeah, we want to be prepared. But there's an effort that goes into the, the practice and the preparation. How does, how do you, what's the best way to make that part of it happen and really get that ingrained in an organization? How do you, how do you, because there's a, a kind of a thought shift, I think, involved in something like that. It is, there is a lot in, you know, a lot of times, it's it's small bites, right? You can't overwhelm them. You can't give them too much at once. We have to take steps, and you know some of that can start with okay. Let's just start by training employees. At the same time, we're training employees. Let's kick out. Let's pick out a few key members of you know management that, in case of an emergency, they will help run the crisis management team, and then we'll start forming that. And from there we can move on to drills, rehearsals, next steps. But let's focus on those first, and then we can move on to more. And, and just giving them a little bit at a time. And, and building up a routine, right? I mean, is that sort of the goal is to build a routine? Because a lot of the, the people, even on a crisis management team, they've got their primary role, and then they're, they've got this secondary role as either leading a group security for their group or preparedness for their group. And it's, you know, sometimes – impressing upon people, I guess, what's the right balance and making sure that gets the right focus, I think is, is a part of the challenge as well. Sure. It is. It really is. I always tell organizations, once you're getting started, it, like if you're brand new with your crisis management team, you guys should at least be getting together and drilling and not running organizational drills, but just drilling that crisis management team, maybe once a quarter, once you get it smooth and you're able to able to work it a little better, then you can do it, you know, biannual or stuff like that. But, you know, we always use a term in the more tactical community, which is, you know, slow is smooth and smooth is fast and start off slow. And that'll, you know, eventually turn into some smoothness. And then that smoothness will turn into a quick response. So, so then uh, moving into the third step, let's talk a little bit about uh, post-event recovery because I, I think that's something I had never even thought about, uh, the, the responsibility that an organization has to help its uh, employees following uh, a, a, you know, a situation, a crisis situation. So what, what's that all about? Yeah, a lot of post-event stuff, um, again, it, it, employees come first, right? So, so how are we getting them mental health help? How, how are we getting them to talk to someone if they need it? Um, financial help. You know, if they've been out of work, how are we doing that? There, there's a whole bunch of different things that go with more HR and finance and legal where, where we have to look at the employees. I, I hate to 
bring this up or talk about it, but even if, you know, if we lose an employee, are we then, um, you know, paying for the funeral costs? Are we doing things like that? And, and there's a lot of different moving parts that go into post event. Um, and then when we look more organizationally with post event, it's how much were our business functions affected? What do we need to do to get back up operational? What do we need to do to get back profitable? And to even do those things and allow employees back into the building, it's what does our physical environment look like, right? Do we have engineers that we can call in case something went down? Do we have general contractor to call? Do we have a biohazard team? Do we have all these different things and uh, different support elements that we need to stand back up and, and be ready to open up and let our employees even into the building. So post event can be a lot of different things that we can go through. And I think Ryan, I get that one of the things, and this is, this is a personal example that I have is my wife works in healthcare. She works in a clinic couple, okay. you know, three days a week. She wasn't on site when this occurred, but she's been part of kind of the, the recovery from it was they did have a, a mental health issue with a patient who pulled a gun. Yeah. In the lobby and they, they reacted appropriately and, and no one was injured. It was resolved, but it, it had a huge impact on everybody in the clinic, even the folks that, you know, maybe weren't there that day, I guess, you know, just a number, they, they supported everybody. It was a pretty good response, but I think some of the reaction to that is what are you physically doing to keep us safer? You know, and how, you know, there's, you can't harden every healthcare clinic, you and can. that recovery, how did there, I think that's just a hard balance, you know, and it was just, it, it's been interesting to see that, how that worked out. It is, it, you know, you bring up balance and that's a true statement. Um, that's like when I do stuff with schools, it's how do we keep the school safe and secure without making it look like a prison, right? It still has to look like an educational institution. And so there is that balance and um, healthcare is a great example of that as well. You know, people don't want to take forever going through metal detectors and a long check-in process just to get to their appointment. So you do, you have to consider your clients and your patients and visitors and, and have a safe and secure environment while also doing that. And, you know, sometimes it can be a hard balance, but we can definitely support our clients by giving them uh, creative ways to do things like that and more functional ways to put in security where it doesn't disrupt patient flow or, you know, an educational environment. And I, and I wonder, and this goes to, to the COVID piece and also to this just recovery from, from that sort of an incident as well, is it almost seems like there's a transitional period too. There's the event, there's the immediacy after the event. And then it, as time goes on, it, it, the response is going to be different. I think, is that how that works? I would definitely say more the response to the employees will be different as far as the response to the actual event that happened. You have to look at it as a multi-layered approach, right? Where, you know, mental health patient came in and was able to pull a gun at the point of impact. We have to worry about getting those patients. Well, not even patients, those employees, mental health counseling. And, you know, that can be, like we said, that can be a traumatic event and all that. But in the background, now facilities is looking at how can we design this different? How can we get this designed so it's safer? Security is looking at what, you know, um, cameras, access control, 
what metal detectors, what, all that different stuff that they can put in. So it's a multi-layered approach and you'll see a bunch of different parts of the organization responding differently to different areas. You know, there's a lot of, we've got a lot of places in this country that are smaller offices, you know, and they're, they're seeing what's going on in the world. And if they, if you had to tell them, Hey, here's, here's a couple simple things you should start with, you know, what would, maybe we end with that, a couple really kind of key pieces of advice for folks. Yeah. With the smaller ones, especially when we look at like mom and pops or just small business, right. That have five to 10 employees, something like that. A lot of times it's overlooked because it is, we're just a small business. What wouldn't happen here? Things like that. We have to look at, you know, even with small business, it's a OSHA requirement that your emergency action plan, that one, you have one and two, it is verbally briefed to all employees. So there is that OSHA requirement there. Um, now, do you need to do as a small business, a large scale drill and tabletop and all that? No, I mean, you can still do a tabletop with a couple key employees because one, when we go back to organizational resiliency, right? It, it's how do we get our organization to respond and stand back up after an emergency and withstand any type of emergency? So we still want to drill that and go through it so we have a good idea. We saw with COVID, a ton of small businesses were affected, especially when you look at like bars, restaurants, things like that, that closed down. And so many of those were affected. So how do we deal with that? How, you know, even if we're a small place, we still need to consider these things and have plans in place to respond and deal with them. Right. I mean, I think that just the thing that rings through is the, the message to me throughout this discussion is have the, take a look at what are the risks, talk to your employees about it and drill on them so that if, if something were to occur, you can be as prepared as, as you can be to keep everybody safe. And I, no matter the size of your business, large or small, I mean, ultimately that's your goal. You want everybody that comes into your business to go home safe. And I mean, I just think it's great. We've got you as a resource to help us help our clients do that for their employees. So this has been a really good discussion. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me guys. This was great. Yes. Yes. It has been a really good discussion and a lot to think about um, and a lot to prepare for as we move into the future. But Ryan, uh, Hopefully, uh, we'll get you back on here again for a future uh, podcast. And uh, I thank all the listeners who have tuned in. Uh, if you're looking to subscribe to the IMEG podcast, The Future Built Smarter, you can uh, do so on your favorite app. Just look for IMEG or The Future Built Smarter. And uh, if you missed the first part of this two-part episode, you'll find that uh, there as well to check into. So uh, thanks, everybody, for tuning in today and uh, look forward to the next podcast. Until then, everybody, take care. <music>